This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds. There it is. There's the new opening. We've been promising you that for a while. I love it. I love it. It's uh it's exactly what I wanted to be. Thank you to everybody who uh, has been harassing me to uh, request a new opening. Not that the first opening wasn't any good, but uh, the new theme to engage, I think, better represents the show. It better represents the vibe of the show that I'm trying to create, which is a vibe of, um, I don't know, the you know, uh, what is it called? Uh, 60s kitsch on the, um, on the big CD of all the different uh, sound beds you could use. Uh, with a little bit of, um, there's a little bit of Star Wars in there, right? A little bit of Star Wars and a little bit of Man from Uncle or Mission Impossible, who knows? But more importantly, we get to hear finally, we finally get to hear from Scott Bakula as Captain Jonathan Archer, a man with whom I hold in great regard and great respect. Uh, Jonathan Archer, that is. Bakula, I don't know. Uh, but we've always loved Archer, and he just hadn't been in there, and 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 we apologize. And also, we've got. Uh, where no one has gone before, right? Because, uh, you know, Next Generation made that change, and, and now we've made it, too. So we got it. We got the new opening, everybody. It's a big show. Big show today. We got a big show. We've got the new opening, and we have a great interview lined up with our friends, Denise and Michael Okuda. This week, uh, available to you in stores and through various online outlets, you can buy the newest iteration of the Star Trek Encyclopedia, which is, if you have the old encyclopedia from the 90s, put that aside. Put that in the junk heap of history. The new one is here. It is big. It is gorgeous. It is hardcover. If you look at the pages from the side, it's color-coded by letter. Uh, It has a beautiful, uh, it comes in binding, and it is massive. It's two books. It's two books, over a thousand pages, and it weighs, it weighs a lot. We're going to talk to the Akudas about this. And um, if you don't know who Michael and Denise Akuda are, they are, um, you know, I don't really watch baseball, but I think they have, you know, what do they call them? Clutch players or, or utility players, like sw- swing players, people who can do anything. What do they call that in baseball? Yeah, utility. Utility. I think the Yakutas are the utility players of all of Star Trek. They've been involved in Star Trek since the mid-1980s, originally in the graphic design department, and then slowly became involved in sort of 
making you know the Bible of of the technology, the techno babble of, of sort of like keeping a record of like how all the things on the ship work. And now are the archivists more than anything else? They are the official archivists of what officially you call every little gadget, every trinket, every every species, every alien, every space born parasite in Star Trek. And um, they uh, are involved in, you know, listen, if you ever buy any of the Blu-rays or DVDs, they're always involved in behind the scenes stuff, both from a technical aspect as, um, you know, as uh, consultants, but also they're interviewed and they do a lot of the, um, uh, you know, the commentaries. And uh, these are just two very important people in Star Trek that are not as well known as some of the other creators. And um, we're, we're delighted to have them on the show today to celebrate the release of the uh, the new remastered, revised, rebooted, and expanded Star Trek Encyclopedia, the hefty, mighty tome which deserves a place on your shelf. So uh, take some other things on your shelf and move them around and make way for the new encyclopedia. It's also an exciting week because, red alert... We have a new sponsor. Yes, a new sponsor for the show. Accomplished. We have a new sponsor that is going to help us uh, keep the lights on here on Deck 44. Let me tell you about Eagle Moss. Eagle Moss is, uh, is a dynamite company uh, that produces uh, high-end but yet affordable um, models, and they do it not just, they do it for all sorts of things, for, for DC, for Marvel, for um, various uh, military uh, Michigas, but the jewel in their crown is what's called the official Star Trek Starships Collection, and Eagle Moss's uh, official Star Trek Starships Collection is now the sponsor of a new, uh, a new part of the show, which I just thought of a minute ago, which is called, um, we're going to call it uh, Dry Dock. So this week in Dry Dock, uh, we're going to talk about one of our favorite ships. Well, if you, by the way, if you, so if you sign up to Eagle Moss, and there's a special page you can do it, st-starships.com slash engage, uh, because the first, um, because the first uh, if you do that, it's a special deal. Uh, it's a bi-monthly thing. You get these models sent to you in the mail to make your desk look awesome, and the first one is only $4.95. Um, <clears throat> the first one you get, ladies and gentlemen, I don't mind saying it, you get the D. You're going to get the D. The first one you're getting is the D, the Enterprise D, Captain Picard's D. It's coming to you through the mail. And uh, it is the best starship? Well, I don't know about that. That's open to debate. Um, but if you, if, you, if you stay with Eagle Moss long enough, and you can cancel any time, but you get two a month, it goes deep. You're going to get Zindi ships. You're going to get... Um, you know, weird, you're going to get a Harry Mudd's ship, you're going to get a lot of these cool ships, but um, here on the dry dock, we're going to talk a little bit about the D. What is it about the Enterprise D? NCC-1701D, Captain Picard's flagship USS Enterprise, Galaxy Class. Where was it constructed? Do you know? Well, the Eagle Moss version is done by a highly skilled artisan using painstaking uh, detailed painting and, and, and modeling and resin work, but of course the Enterprise D constructed at the Utopia Plenty Ship Fleet Yards in Mars. Launched in the year 2363, Captain Jean-Luc Picard had over a thousand crew and it was 
the first one to um, have a bar, 10 forward, deck 10 at the front. Get to look at the stars that they warp past you. And the first one that we ever saw separate the battle bridge from the saucer, which, by the way, is a topic that we're going to discuss with Michael and Denise Okuda later on today's show. But before we get to that interview, please, please, for the love of God, for the love of, of, of your own awesome desk, make it better. Go to st-starships.com slash engage. Check out the Eagle Moss models. And I tell you, they're the greatest thing. And not just because they're sponsoring the show. I thought they were cool long before they started paying us. I swear to God that's true. I've always wanted these ships. I don't actually have them myself, but I've seen them. And they really are cool. Um, you know what else is cool? Our, our Denise and Mike Akuto, who took time off from the busiest week for them because the book is coming out this week. And I said, I want to talk to you guys. So um, we woke them up early in the morning. Uh, they're out there on the West Coast. And uh, we had what I thought was going to be a 30-minute chat. And it turned out to be an hour chat. That's the way I roll sometimes. And I feel bad because at first we got on, it's like, um, we, we really only have about a half hour. I said, no problem. If you got to go, just let me know when you got to go. And then we talked. And when I thought we were done, we hung up and I looked up and I went, oh, my God, we went exactly twice as long as I said we would. So I apologize to the Akutas. But nevertheless, why don't we um, why don't we just move on over then to that uh, conversation, which we recorded just a little while ago because uh, it's an hour, right? And, you know, you're driving in the car right now. You know, It doesn't take you that long to get to work. So why don't we get to the interview right now, and we will talk more soon. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Engage, Engage. the official Star Trek podcast. Energize. And we're back. And this is exciting because our next guests are, um, you know what I love about Star Trek is it's a discussion of um, meritocracy. You know, you if you're good, you wind up just doing what you do. And my understanding, and we're going to ask these guys more about it uh, in a moment, is uh, Michael and Denise Okuda started in Star Trek production in the graphic design department. Uh, and then when somebody's good, you use them for everything they've got. And they have sort of morphed and evolved into becoming uh, really the, the record keepers of Star Trek and also the interpreters of so much of the technology. So you have art and design on one hand and the hard science on the other. How can two people be involved in both? Because they're great. That's how. So uh, let's uh, um, beam them in. Hold on a second. I, they're in the matter uh, transporter chamber right now. Hold on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, Denise and Michael, welcome to Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. How are you? We are good. Thanks for beaming, beaming us in. I think what, we're all here. Yes, it, it looks like we're all here. You know, there's the old question. When you get beamed, do you die and do your atoms just regenerate, but it's not you like the ending of The Prestige? What's your take on that? 
Um, the way that the description of beaming is written, I would go for you die and and you and you you're reconstructed. Whoa! However, yeah. However, if uh, what I wish we had written is we I wish we had done some kind of dimensional transfer thing uh, to be less ambiguous. Okay, because this is something that I never thought about. I just assumed, yeah, you get zapped over. And then as I got a little older, and I think if you read James Blish's Spock Must Die, there's a lot of, uh, which is non-canon, so let's get that out of the way. Uh, there, There's a lot of thought to, it actually isn't you that's transported over. Denise, what do you, what's your take on this? It makes my head hurt, so I just <laughs> uh, don't even think about it. Awesome. Well, speaking of, it makes your head hurt to think about it. It makes your back hurt to lug around the new Star Trek encyclopedia because how many how many pounds is it all together? 11. Yes. It's amazing. Now, the reason why the Akutas are on the show and we've been wanting to get them on for a while. And by the way, the, you and I we've we've sort of met in passing over times at conventions, but um it's always been like, "Oh, hello, nice to meet you and we'll talk later and then it never happens." So I'm really glad to have you on the show now. Um the encyclopedia, the first version, was a mere 400 pages. A mere 400 pages. Nothing. How many pages is the new the new one, the revised edition, which is out this week? Over a thousand. Yes. <laughs> In small print <laughs> with many, yeah, many over, photographs. Over a thousand pages, smaller print, so the actual number of words is, is way more than twice. When we first started, they thought that they didn't want to do a two-volume set, and they asked if we could cull it down, and we basically said no. Um, so they they relented, and they said, okay, we're going to do a two-volume set, hence the 11 pounds. Yeah. Well, it's a thing of great beauty, and for uh, Star Trek enthusiasts, it, de- it, it demands a spot on your shelf. It is a big, bold presence, and... Um, I did not bring it with me to the studio today because it's really heavy. You know, once you get it, if you order it on Amazon or one of the other places that bring it to you, good. Make the mailman bring it to you. (laughs) And then when you get it, you put it up there and then you take it down off the shelf regularly for consultations. So um, it's very exciting. Congratulations to you guys. Uh, But I I do want to do a little bit of, of a history of of both of your involvement in Star Trek. But but real quick, since the idea to revise the uh, encyclopedia and today which is you know literally it's in stores this week we're recording on a Monday the uh, 17th of October um, how how uh, how long uh, were you working on this newest iteration of the book which you worked on decades ago well this version took about two years and a lot of that was uh, full-time it was our full-time job um, the encyclopedia is um, a tremendous undertaking. Uh, we hadn't updated it since 1999. Um, so about two years of our lives went into this book. It's one of those things you think, gee, I'm working on I'm working on a Star Trek. I mean, it's a it's a Star Trek book. I get to watch Star Trek episodes. I get to read Star Trek scripts. That's got to be a lot of fun. And and the truth is, it is a lot of fun. But at a certain point. It's a stupendous amount of work, <laughs> and uh, and you find yourself going, why why did I agree to do this? And so we always say we are happy that it is written it and and finally out. Yeah, it's done. Yeah, and and now you done. can you can take a deep breath and try not to think about Star Trek 
for a little while, even though it is something that's been in both of your lives for a long, long time, it must infect well, your dreams, right? You must you must uh-huh. dream about Bajorans and Betazoids and Benzites. No, I think I think we dream about production because for <laughs> so many years, um, I mean, that was our job. And so it's very different watching Star Trek or doing research for uh, a book than our day job was, which was production. So, um, yes, we may dream about Star Trek, but it's not about Star Trek. It's about, you know, production. I got you. You know, at, at, the, at the same time, now that the book is done, you can actually we can actually sit back and pull the thing down and 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 thumb through it and go, oh, yeah, that's why we were doing this. This is fun. <laughs> well, it really is. I mean, it's a beautiful uh Aside from being heavy and large and, and demands the presence on your shelf, it's beautifully packaged. There, the paper quality is is nice. The photos, there's a there are so many photos. When you get to volume two and you get to the letter S and you start getting to ships, you know, just the the amount of information of every ship that's ever mentioned on the show gets its own little uh, its own little um, you know notification, and then. Um, uh, there's also, you know, every insignia, every badge is there in beautiful, bright colors. You can really scrutinize something that you, you know, is only worn on somebody's chest for 30 seconds in, in one episode. You can really stop and look at the design of that, which also that has to have a special place in your heart because that's where so much of your uh, work in Star Trek started was with the, you know, the um, I don't want to say graphic design, the, the design elements, you know, working on insignias and typography and little uh as they say in uh in film school the mise-en-scene of the of uh, of the show you know the the stuff on the on the screen can can um uh can you talk a little bit about uh how how you first started in the design aspect of the show well i i started out like uh like a lot of people as a as a kid watching star trek loving star trek and um uh, when I was very uh, when I was young, I discovered a book uh, written by Stephen Poe and Gene Roddenberry called "The Making of Star Trek," and to me that was a huge revelation. It suddenly, uh, I suddenly realized that in addition to the oh, there was a parallel series of adventures uh, by Gene Roddenberry and Bob Justman and Matt Jeffries and Gene Kuhn and other heroes who were doing equally amazing things to make the uh, show happen. And as I started working, as I, uh, uh, as I graduated from school, I realized that I can do some of those things. <laughs> so uh, I was, uh, in fact, working in uh, very low-budget uh, television commercials and uh, corporate graphics. And uh, uh, on a whim, I, I sent in a portfolio and a um, letter to, um, uh, to Paramount and expecting entirely to hear nothing, but I figured you, sh- you should try because otherwise you'll regret it. And to my utter shock, I got a letter back from, or excuse me, I got a phone call from uh, uh, from Ralph Winter, who, who was the uh, one of the producers on Star Trek two, three, four through six, and he said um, he left a phone message for me saying, uh, "Gosh, we're already staffed up in Star Trek three, but if we ever do a Star Trek four, uh, I'll give you a call. And I thought, well, that's the nicest brush I've ever gotten. <laughs> and to my utter shock, two years later, uh, he called me up and said, hey, we're doing Star Trek Four. Do you want to work on it? So I had to think real hard. And I said, yeah. 
Absolutely. What 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 was in that portfolio that you sent him? What that that led them to think that yes, this is appropriate for Star Trek. I mean, certainly, you know, it would have been oh, this is a great designer. But what was it that you think was in there that made them think ah, yes, this is the guy that knows the future? Uh, I didn't try to be the guy who knew the future. What I did was I looked at their set. Uh, if you look, if you recall the Star Trek the Motion Picture uh, Bridge, had all these round screens on it, and I thought, well, if you have a round screen. Logically, they, it would have been designed to show certain kinds of, uh, of graphics. What kind of graphics might those be? And how could you produce those graphics quickly and inexpensively? And that's what I sent in. So was this, were these drawings or were these computer, uh, like simulated computer displays? They, this was in the dark ages of computers. This was, this was entirely pen and ink. Okay, so you were doing pen and ink drawings of what computer graphics would look like. Yes, that, uh, ex- with very rare exceptions like the Genesis Effect, very, very few of those computer graphics back then were actually computer graphics. Right, right. So when somebody's screen would, uh, like, uh, I don't know, Star Trek The Motion Picture, when, when Chekhov is, is firing into the asteroid in the wormhole, that was actually designed and drawn and animated. That was not done computer generated, correct? That, that was done with con- conventional backlit or uh, uh, cell animation. Uh, so, yes. Wow. It's something that you don't even think about today when you're watching movies, whether it's, you know, you just assume that it's done with computers. Well, now, uh, computers are this odd combination of not only is it faster, not only is it better, but it can be, uh, it can be quite a bit cheaper. So, um, as soon as we could, we started using computers on Star Trek Next Generation for uh, uh, for computer animation, and by the time we reached Voyager, we were, we were using uh, computer design for virtually all of the graphics, the control panels, and and signage and everything. Right. So, uh, so Michael, your first gig with Star Trek was with Star Trek Four, which was incidentally the, the the movie that turned me from a moderate fan into an insane fan. But if you poke around the internet, Denise, you predated Michael with Star Trek because you were in. That famous shot, those famous uh, scene in Star Trek: The Motion Picture, uh, where everybody is on the deck with with our friend uh, Bijo Trimble, who we interviewed a, a few weeks ago. Uh, you were there that day. That's becoming like one of these, like the Rage in Harlem day when everybody, all the jazz musicians were there. All the important Star Trek people were there that day. Is that not correct? Uh, that's correct. Um, Gene Roddenberry was so gracious. He he said that he wanted to reach out to fans of the show and give them an opportunity to be extras in this rec deck scene. And uh, I got a call from a friend and um, showed up. I mean, there was a a cattle call. You had to be selected. And I remember being pulled out of the lineup and being told that they wanted me to be a Vulcan. So, uh, of course, I said, sure. Mm. And, uh, you know, went in for fitting and wardrobe and then showed up on the day of the shoot, reported to makeup, became a Vulcan. It's hard to see me. I'm on the far. I'm on camera. Camera right. Camera right. About three or four rows in. I'm wearing a brown uniform. But I'm there. I can can spot her instantly. Yeah, I'm there. Well, so it was, it, was an, it was an amazing, amazing experience, if you can imagine, because I was a huge Star Trek fan. Well, that's and what I was going to gonna ask: there, is, is how did you, um, you know, what what were, what was your credentials to uh, to be an, an Uber fan at that point? How were you involving yourself in the Star Trek community in 1979? 
Well, back then there wasn't, you know, there wasn't the internet as we know it today. And so it, I was really on an island. I, I loved the show. I grew up with the show um, and uh, didn't really know that many people. Um, I had been to a couple of conventions. B. Joe Trimble did um, some early conventions in the mid-70s, and I had been to a couple of those. Um, but I was a huge Star Trek fan, but pretty much on an island. I, I didn't, there, you know, didn't belong to a community. And again, the world is totally different now. And um, so it was quite an, an amazing experience. So let's fast forward a little bit. Uh, Star Trek Four. So Michael, you're you're now, uh, you know, on part of the crew, and your initial work with that was was working basically on the computer screens, like we discussed earlier, and and that sort of design work. How did it sort of morph uh, morph into? Because um, you were involved in sort of writing uh, technical manuals that would ultimately help the writers understand you know, how exactly warp drive works and things like that. I mean, once Star Trek IV happened, you continued to work on Star Trek pretty much all the way, all the way through till, till today. Well, uh, what happened was uh, uh, we had a great art department for Star Trek The Next Generation. We had our production designer, Herman Zimmerman. We had conceptual designer, uh, Andy Probert. And we had another con- uh, artist, uh, uh, Rick Sternbach, who was, who was uh, the other illustrator. And... Uh, particularly Rick and I were huge uh, sci-fi geeks. We were, but we were also huge fans of the of the real life space program. Uh, neither of us are scientists, but we were we we're big we we're big science nerds. And uh, we started writing memos unsolicited to the uh, to the to to Gene and the writers saying, you know, this could be this or that could be that. And um, we kind of learned how how you make suggestions. You don't say this is really dumb. Uh, you certainly don't say you need to change everything. What you need, you learn to say, uh, this is what you want to do. This is what the writer wants to do. Here is maybe a slightly better way to do that. And the writer started started appreciating it. So we started doing it more and more. And finally, by the time um, uh, Mike Pillar was uh, uh, was executive producer, uh, he formalized it and uh, and gave us the title of, of tech consultants. And from that, uh, uh, Rick and I wrote the Star Trek The Next Generation technical manual. And from that, Denise and I wrote the Star Trek uh, chronology. And from that, we wrote the encyclopedia. <laughs> awesome. So it's a snowballing effect, uh, really. Um, but so give me, give me a, if you can remember, what was the first thing that sort of like techno babblish or scientific point that was like kind of bugging you and then you had the guts to mention and that the writers incorporated? Was it something to do with warp drive or was it something to do with deflector dishes or was there something where you just said, ah, it would, it would just make more sense if it was this way. Do you recall what, what sort of the first big victory for you was? Hmm. Well, the first, my first victory turned out to be a defeat. Um, in uh, the first episode in Connor at Farpoint, one of the coolest sequences was the uh, uh, Sasa separation scene. Oh yeah, but uh, I th- I thought it needed to. I thought it was hurting itself. I thought that uh, by having Picard saying, "Oh my God, we're going to separate the saucer. Stand by to separate the saucer. Prepare for saucer separation. Saucer separation in five, four, three, two, one." I thought we were killing the drama when it actually happened. Uh, I wrote a 
I absolutely unsolicited and I had entirely no business doing this. Uh, I wrote a note to Gene saying, you know, wouldn't it be better if he said, prepare for battle configuration or something like that. So, so that when the actual separation happened, it was a visual surprise. Mm. And Gene very kindly uh, wrote back and said, that's a great idea. We'll do that. But then it turned, turned out a few days later that for whatever reason of just the logistics of, um, of script writings and uh, and distribution, that he had to not do that. Oh, I see. But to have Gene uh, 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 say, "Hey, that that was great. That uh, that that was that was quite a rush. The first big victory wasn't really a victory. It was, or wasn't really a technical technical thing. Was um, Herman Zimmerman and Andy and Rick were struggling with uh, trying to come up with the design for." Uh, uh, for Jordy's visor. Now, this wasn't my area at all, uh, and I certainly had my hands full. But I, I knew the deadline were coming up, and uh, they were coming up with all these great designs. But Gene just wasn't happy. So I was staying with uh, two friends of mine in Los Angeles because I had just moved to Los Angeles. Uh, Jeff and Kiku Annan, and Kiku had a uh, a hair clip on her on her dresser. Banana clip. A banana clip. <laughs> and I said, hey, can I borrow this? And she said, sure, why? I'm going to show it to them at, at work. So I brought it in and I showed it to Herman Zimmerman. And I said, what if you use this as a texture on, 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 on the visor? And Herman looked at it and said, hmm, hmm. I think you just may have solved a very difficult problem. Oh, wow. So he, he had it sent downstairs, had it painted, rushed it over to Gene's office, and two days later, uh, Gene sent me a bottle of champagne. <laughs> That's awesome. So, you know, when somebody's got a good idea, if it comes from a different department, uh, never say no to a good idea, right? Exactly, <laughs> as long as you follow the chain of command. Right. So, so uh, Denise, um, at, can you tell me when, when did you uh, come into uh, – uh, the Trek uh, world on on a on a more formal level than just being in the uh, in that one shot in motion picture. Well, Michael knew absolutely no one in Hollywood, and I knew Michael, <laughs> and um, I actually was working as a registered nurse and uh, met Michael because I was brought up to consult with the art department on the look of the sick bay of the future. And then I met Michael. Actually, I met him because he had a uh, Max Headroom puppet on his bulletin board, and I loved Max Headroom. I thought it's a brilliant show. It really and, is. And we're actually—I was going to bring that up later. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. I'm glad you brought that up. Anyway, it started a conversation, um, and we started dating. And if I wanted to see Michael because he was working on Star Trek V, I had to basically come to him on the weekends I had off. So. Long involved story short, he kind of taught me the ropes, or at least as much as I could get done in a finite period of time. And then when Star Trek VI, the feature Star Trek VI came along, uh, Herman Zimmerman, whom I had met, uh, basically hired me as a production assistant. Um, uh, and from there, I was hired as a, a full scenic artist on Star Trek uh, Deep Space Nine. So my first adventure was the feature Star Trek VI, and then I was brought on as a full member of the, um, joined the union and, and became uh, scenic artist, graphic designer uh, for Star Trek Deep Space Nine. 
fantastic. So at that and then at that point you were doing similar work together um, in terms of uh, you know graphic design and set design, but then also got involved in writing these technical manuals. So so the two of you both sort of have. Do you consider it a left brain right brain sort of uh, intermixed chamber, or is it just this is what you do? Is it something that you just do everything and that's that's all there is to it? Well, I think that both of us, Michael said he wasn't a scientist. I believe he is a scientist. Both of us have a, a, a passion for science um, and we kind of look at the world that way. So it is right brain, left brain, but it seems to work. Um, I did not write the technical manual. I couldn't even go close to the technical manual. One of my favorite stories is Michael was up very late at night, which is not unusual, and I came into the study and I looked over his shoulder and he was writing a nanosecond by nanosecond what happens to you when you transport. <laughs> and I looked at that and I laughed and I said, you need to come to bed. <laughs> so, um, uh, but, you know, it is a right brain, left brain. We don't seem to have any problems integrating. Um, they kind of go together. Yeah. Well, it is interesting because I I mean the you know the 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 look of Star Trek is a is an artistic endeavor. I mean, I know that you were both very involved in um just the creation of the of the the type of fonts that are used and and sort of, you know, on Deep Space 9, you know, what a Cardassian computer console looks like and and things like that. You, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think that th- that the same person that would be creating that would also be writing the minutia that's found in the Star Trek encyclopedia. I mean, it takes a very it takes a very specific type of person to to be able to do both of that, and it's amazing that these two people also happen to be married to each other. So it's definitely um, definitely a nice uh, a nice mix. Let's put it that way. Well, all of those things require people who know and respect the material and because we both come from loving star trek and having delved into it most of our lives that's uh that's that's really the foundation of it all to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it welcome back to engage the official star trek podcast with your host jordan hoffman you are after all irrational let's talk now about the the updated version of the encyclopedia because it's a big deal. First of all, it did make a little bit of news, and we've been talking about it on this show since we started in June. We've been referring to the new films, the trilogy of of, of new films, uh, as the Kelvin universe, the Kelvin timeline, because that was something that you worked out for uh, in this version of the uh, encyclopedia. And I think it's a brilliant... Um, a brilliant way of, of, of referring to it, not the J.J. verse, the Abrams verse, or just the reboot verse or anything of that. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, the eureka moment of coming up with that uh, description? Because I think, it's, I think it's just terrific. 
It wasn't really a eureka moment. What we did was our first, uh, well, if there was a eureka moment, it was the realization that you could simply deal with the Kelvin timeline as an alternate universe in the same way that we did the mirror universe or our different different futures. And if you spoke of, if you spoke of it in those terms, it its place in, uh, in in the Star Trek pantheon becomes very clear. And once we did that, we knew we needed a way, to, uh, a handle to refer to it. We, it needed to be something that was in universe. It needed to be something that that gave equal weight to this timeline uh, as well as the original. We didn't want something that that was even slightly snarky. Yeah. Uh, but we wanted it to be something that came organically out of the out of the un- universe. So we actually uh, we actually delved over for quite some time. Uh, uh, we first wanted to call it, to name it for the sun, for the, the nova that exploded that triggered the events. Mm. Uh, except that that star never got a name in the, in the movies. Now, it got a name in one of the graphic novels. It was it, uh, the Hobus. And that's not a bad name, except that if you didn't if you didn't get that particular graphic novel, you're not going to know what it means. So if we called it the Hobus timeline, then every time we called it that, we would have to footnote it. Right, right. And so that that wasn't going to work. And then we thought, well, maybe uh, Spock was the one who went back. So maybe it was the Spock timeline. But then, then it, because Spock has so many other meanings in, in yeah. the Star Trek universe, that require footnoting. So we uh, contacted John Van Sitters at CBS Consumer Products, and we said, hey. What do you guys call it? And he goes, well, we don't really have an answer. So we said, let's send a note to the folks who um, who made the film. And, uh, um, um, you know, do they have a, a nomenclature? Because it's one of those things, it doesn't hugely matter what it is. You just need, it needs to be respectful and it needs to be consistent. Right. And, and it didn't and, really, it didn't really matter until the creation of this book, really, when, which is going to be like in stone. It's like, oh, we, we got to get... We all have to get literally on the same page here. So, so you contacted the the the, the creators and and uh, got got no help from them uh, in that in that department. And it's it's one of those things they didn't ha- they never had to deal with it because they they were dealing with essentially a completely separate entity. So of course they didn't have a reason to, to ask that question. So finally, uh, the 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 one thing that. It was one of the triggering events. It was uh, something that, even if you're casually familiar with the 2009 film, you, you knew was the Kelvin. Right. And so we ran it up the flagpole, and uh, nobody had a problem with it. So that's what we settled on. And we figured it must have stuck because we started hearing about the Kelvin timeline way before the book was uh, published. And so, um, to our minds, uh, John Ben Sitters at uh, CBS Consumer Products liked it and shared it with the folks doing other product, and it just became what you call the J.J. Abrams universe now is called the Kelvin universe. So right. um, we're, we're pleased. We're, we're happy that it now is succinct and everybody's on the same page. It, it is perfect because it is respectful, and it's also – but it makes sense story-wise. Like, I, like when the 2009 film came out – and uh, Alex Kurtzman and Bob Orsi were, were doing interviews and, you know, kind of when people would say, wait a second, why did, you know, in, in the original Star Trek it went like this, but in your movie it goes like that, they would say, hey, destruction of the Kelvin, that changes everything. It really is the principal moment 
It's Nero going back in time, blowing up that ship. Who knows what kind of butterfly effect blowing up that ship has on everything else. So, yeah, the Enterprise is built in Iowa and not in space dock. Maybe, who you know, why? who's to say why not? Because whoever was on that ship got killed, made something else happen, made something else happen, and now they're building the ship on, on Iowa, and you can't argue otherwise. So it when, when I... When I first heard it, and it was, it sort of like took off like wildfire on, on Twitter and whatnot. It's like, we're calling it the Kelvin timeline now. It was, didn't take a minute for me to think why. I, was, I had the Eureka moment on, on your behalf. I shouted Eureka and threw my laptop in the air. So, so yeah, there you go. I hope you caught your laptop. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, well, so yeah, go ahead. Actually, if you, uh, if, if, you, if you watch the film carefully, there are moments that predate the uh, the, uh, the destruction of the Kelvin. So if you read our uh, uh, somewhere in the book, I forget where uh, we wrote that. Obviously, this caused ripple effects up and down the timeline. So we're 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 we're, we're trying trying to cover all the bases. Hey, don't don't uh, don't try to corner me with logic, sir. I like this idea, and I'm sticking with it. How does that sound? <laughs> no, we're we're we're, uh, we're we're very happy right. to have. Helped figure this out, and also a little commentary from from my side. You wouldn't. Nobody should call it the Abrams verse anyhow, because Justin Lin made the best of the three movies anyway. But that's just me. I'm not going to ask you to comment on that. Um, now, the other big thing about the book, and it's consistent with the previous version, is um, you do not. And this will maybe ruffle a few feathers. Uh, you do not include the animated series as official Star Trek encyclopedia canon. Um, because it, it would then be instead of a thousand pages, it would be fifteen hundred pages. So that's one thing. But did this give you any sleepless nights, or are you okay letting the animated be its own thing on the side? We're we're okay with it being on on the side. Yeah, we re, uh, we thought about it, and uh, yeah, it would have added pages and and things like that. But the, at the end of the day, it was uh, as we understand it, it was Gene's request. It was Gene's wish, so uh, he's no longer with us. But he's uh, but he was the boss. Yeah, it really wasn't our decision. I think the the most that was our decision was even though two years sounds like a long time, it really wasn't. I mean, we hit the ground running once we knew this was going to happen, and and there were still discussions going back and forth. Uh, we've done this before. We know how much work it is. We know that you have to devote your time consistently um and we just started working i mean we didn't wait and um because quite frankly we were frightened it was two years but we knew that it was going to take every single day and we were going to have to treat it as a full-time job which we did mm. um so to add yet another layer of complexity really we didn't want to do and since the marching orders were came from other than us continue don't include the um animated series we, you know we were going good because now we have half a chance of making the deadline and it also you know, at, oh go ahead at the same time there, there are things we love about the animated show and absolutely uh, and uh for example when uh when we worked on the remastered original series um uh dave rossi came up with this brilliant idea of putting the uh the vulcan city from yesterday yesteryear into a couple of matte paintings uh, we loved that idea, and and and, uh, and we did that, and we used that in um, 
uh, in the encyclopedia uh, on one of the uh, one of the never before seen ships that we added to the uh, to the remastered was uh, based on a ship from uh, More Tribbles, More Troubles. Mm. It's this uh, really interesting ship design that I absolutely love, and we uh, we put it in there. So it's it's not that not that we don't like. It's not that we don't like the material. It's just that that's just the way it worked out. And also, where does it end? I mean, because then you start saying, well, some of these novels are really great and they have been referenced in later films or later shows. So it becomes an amorphous thing at that point. I mean, well, that's that's true. But that actually hits upon one of our, our hopes for the book that, uh, you know, we have friends who write novels and we hope that this will serve as as a as a reference to people uh, who are writing books and reading books, that this was in the show, and whatever you take out, take off from it, where whatever directions you want to go, that's cool. We love it, but uh, this material. Um, yeah, and 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 the other thing is, uh, you know, if if one wanted to be a you know a jerk about, it, it's like, why do I need to buy this book when I have Memory Alpha? which is, uh, you know, the online uh, database, which is all sort of user-submitted uh, user content, which is voluminous. And, you know, if you were to print out everything in Memory Alpha, it would be 100,000 pages probably. Part of what makes this book so important is that it, it, there is a succinctness to it. Um, each entry is just as many words as you need to get the point across and to, to be precise and to give you all the relevant inf- information and include a really nifty picture. And um, it really is a perfect reference guide because it cuts away, you know, if you want to go further, you can do further research, but it's getting to the heart of the matter. And I just wanted to ask you guys both about, you know, how how hard it was pruning each entry to just just as, as few words as needed to, to get the point across. Oh, you're one of the few people who who actually understand. Yeah, that's act, that actually is a challenge. Uh, you know what's what's important. Uh, what well, what would be cool, but is yeah, we have we we want to put an extra paragraph into Spock instead of this. Right, right. Uh, so yeah, uh, every bit of ent- every bit of information is competing against everything else. There's also. Um the 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 conversation of you know what do you include and what don't you include there is very little correct me if I'm wrong uh, there's very little real world in there in terms of production for example William Shatner does not have an entry but you do have entries for each individual episode so um, you know the City on the Edge of Forever has has an entry but William Shatner doesn't. But certainly Captain Kirk does. So I'm just curious about the conversation about where you involve real world versus, you know, fictional world. The, the basic conceit of the book is that uh, we imagine that we, the two of us, live sometime in the future beyond the time of Star Trek. And you're looking back on what these things happen. And, you, and that's the basic that's the basic um, uh, conceit of the book. We. In those terms, yes, we shouldn't have put the episodes titles in there, but we decided we decided that those were useful. That that, uh, that people are going to look up sitting on the edge of forever, and also when you look up sitting on the, on the edge of forever, we can have cross references that say, okay, this was the guy that got, that zapped himself, or uh, this this was uh, this was the drug that that McCoy took. So. Um, 
That was a violation of our metaphor, but we think it was, it was a useful one. And at the end of the day, you want it to be a good book. Hmm. Well, I can help you retcon this because if you're from hundreds and hundreds of years in the future, these stories that our characters go through will be discussed as events. So the events of involving going back and meeting Edith Keeler is just called in common parlance. Oh, that's City on the Edge of Forever. We all know that story. And that's why somebody would look it up that way. How do you like that for a retcon? That's exactly what I meant to say. You <laughs> put it perfectly. Um, but, you know, the, another really cool thing in there, and just by thumbing through it, there's 100,000 cool things in there. You have, um, you know, I just randomly stopped in the letter P, and you have an entry for predestination paradox, which is a sort of a sci-fi trope, but it comes up a lot in Star Trek. So it gets its own entry. Um you know, there, there's a lot of little nooks and crannies like that. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm curious about the conversation that the two of you had about what to include that was kind of like that, like story elements as opposed to, you know, <clears throat> a, a specific ship or or a specific uh, weapon or a gadget or something like that. In the case of predestination paradox, that term was actually used in dialogue in um, the episode um, um, Trials and Tribulations. So that one was easy, but we tried to approach it as if we're researchers there. And what do you want people to know? What uh, if you're in the if you're in the 25th or 26th century? What what's important about Picard? Um, and sometimes that takes you in different directions. Uh, for example, um, uh, uh, the excuse me, the character of uh, of Rom in Deep Space Nine. In the early drafts, he was um, uh, he was just Quark's slightly slower uh, 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 brother, and that was that was his character. But at the end of Deep Space Nine, he became the uh, the Grand Negus of the Ferengi Alliance. So if you're if you're in the future and you're you're writing about about the guy, what's the first thing you need to know about him? He was Grand Negus. So you 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 you, you try to say. What would have been important to someone in that future? Mm. I like that. I like the idea of <clears throat> looking at Star Trek as something from uh, from the past in the way, you know, which leads me to think, of course, you know, 50 years from now at the next anniversary, they'll probably still have paper in some capacity. Somebody will be updating this book again for the next 50 years. That's the hope. Anyhow. Well, Michael and I like paper. I mean, we we certainly, uh, you know, use our computers every day for multiple reasons, but there's something about sitting down with a book um, that we consider to be very special. And this is a reference book. This isn't something that, you know, you would read, probably not read cover to cover, but this is something that you, you may see an episode and you go, oh, I want to learn more about this. Or my favorite episode is The Inner Light, and I want to know, um, I want to look at that episode and I want to read all of the definitions in that episode. So, um, like I said, there's something to be said for paper and there's something to be said for holding a book. And uh, we're, we're very pleased with the way the encyclopedia turned out. What a lot of uh, we've heard from many, many friends and fans, what they do is they is they keep the encyclopedia by their uh, on their couch by the television, and it's something that they thumb through while they're watching the, uh, watching the show. You uh, you go oh that well, that's that episode. Oh wait, what was that guy? You look up that guy, and as you're filming, as you're reading about that guy, 
you, you, you find out something else and you go to another entry and it becomes a rabbit hole. But it's a deliberate one. It, it's uh, what you're hoping is not just a reference, but a way to explore Star Trek that's a little bit different from actually watching it on television that you can you can take a guide or a random or a uh, or a selected exploration of whatever part of the Star Trek universe you want and uh, we find ourselves doing that now that now that it's actually out in paper we can just kind of thumb through it and you just kind of lose yourself now now that it's done you can you can enjoy it so um, enjoy it yeah so I would uh, um I don't know for certain because I haven't done the deep dive on it yet, but I would imagine that there probably are a couple of Easter egg jokes in there, maybe, because there certainly are some on the acknowledgments page. Um, is that something that we should be looking around for? Or did you play it pretty straight once you got past the acknowledgments page? We mostly played it straight. Oh, what what Easter, what do you think is an Easter egg on the acknowledgments page? <clears throat> well, there's two. <laughs> there's two there, there's actually more than two but let me let me dig up the the picture I took uh one is the the photo you use um on the acknowledgments page on the left there's like a matte painting shot and it's from uh the menagerie from the um the remastered version and if you look at it long enough and you think about it and you go why is this picture here other than all other pictures you realize it's because the two of you are, are in that shot did I figure that out correctly? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and it's in it's in the remastered Menagerie episode. Um, Michael and I and some of the folks at C some of the artists at CBS Digital, uh, we borrowed some uh, costumes, some some uniforms, and they photographed us. And we are peppered throughout um, th throughout the episodes in the in the remastered. Um, episodes. Uh, Michael is, I think, piloting a, a shuttle in Journey to Babel. Um, I'm. If you see this red stick, that's me. You know, off in the corner, looking or looking through a window. That's usually me because I had a red dress uniform on. Um, so yeah, absolutely. And we just thought that was kind of fun. Absolutely. And then also, if you look on the thank yous, I mean, there's the usual. You're thanking your, your, your the people that helped you get the images and, and people that work at uh, the publishing company and at CBS and blah, blah, blah. And then you have, it's not even its own paragraph. So you really have to be reading it and why I was reading it. I don't know, but I was, I must've had a sense that there was something in there. Uh, there is after the special thanks and the extra special thanks, there's inspiration by, and you start listing a bunch of names and it took me um, until the, well, on the second name, I said, wait a second, something's up here. And then I kept going, oh, wait, 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 this is all a big gag. So you have some great names from, not even just from science fiction, just, just cool people in general. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read them, and you can maybe tell people who are listening who these people are. How does that sound? That sounds good. Okay. Be because the first one I, I had to look up. I was very embarrassed. There's only two on here that I had to look up I didn't get. Uh, the first one is Alice P. Little. L-I-D-D-E-L-L, -L, and I, I am humiliated to, to realize I didn't know who that was. Does everybody know her by that name and I'm just a dunce, or is that something that you kind of have to know a little some, bit of extra history? Some people know it, and, uh, and, and some, 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 some people know that Alice P. Little was the little girl who inspired Lewis Carroll to write Alice in Wonderland. 
So what I want to know is which of these names uh, came from Michael and which one came from Denise, or were they both came from both of you? Is that is, is was there harmony on each one, or were there some picks that came from one or the other? I think this one came from Michael. I can't remember, but I think it did. Okay. The next one is Ford Prefect, which was the Hitchhiker's Guide. The Hitchhiker's Guide. We that we both. Absolutely. That one. Uh, that was when I went. Hey, wait a second. Ford Prefect. I know that. Uh, the third one is is a cool name, but again, if it's bundled in with a bunch of other names, you wouldn't necessarily realize that it was uh, uh, a fictional inspiration. Is Susan Calvin? Susan Calvin from Isaac Asimov's uh, I Robot stories. There you go. Uh, the next one, Haywood Floyd, but not Doctor, that- not Doctor Haywood Floyd. Yeah, we should have made it doctor. We should have made it doctor. <laughs> one of our, one of our, if not our most favorite movie in the whole world is 2001: A Space Odyssey. Yep, yep. You know, I just saw it again in 70 millimeter in New York. They had a special projection. Isn't that striking? It's we've seen it a couple of times in 70. It's just, it's it blows your mind away. That was made in 1960. Was released in 1968. Yep. I mean, wow. It's 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 never been it's incomparable. It's 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 just amazing. It is probably my favorite movie of all time. And yeah, if if you haven't seen it yet and if you want to, as it happens, just a few weeks ago, we did an interview with the director by the name of Matt Johnson, who uh, made a movie called Operation Avalanche, which is probably still playing out in, in Los Angeles where you are. Um, and is well, you guys might hate it because you guys work with NASA sometimes, which we didn't even talk about on this show. It's a mock documentary about faking the moon landing. <laughs> Believe it or not, you're right. We would. You're right. We wouldn't like it. But it, but it's <laughs> but it's done in a very pro NASA way. It's 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 very it's very loving. You got to trust me on this. But part of it is the movie, which is done mock documentary style. The 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 gate crash. Shepperton Studio and gate crash the shooting of 2001: A Space Odyssey. So there's oh, like, that like fun. that's fun. Yeah, no, you you got to trust me on this one. It's a really interesting movie. Um, okay, so moving on from Doctor Hayward, Logan Five. I think everybody knows who that is. Logan Five, of course, was from Logan's Run. There you go. Uh, Margaret O'Keefe from from A Wrinkle in Time. A wrinkle- time was one of the were some of these were these so far from both of you or was one of them were any of these one like no no i really want to have it in and the other one was like no 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 that one's silly but you did it anyway well they're all a little silly (laughs) you know but why we put them in is they all had profound influence on really both of us we're very fortunate um that mike and i think so much alike and have so much in common i mean it's um, Wrinkle in Time, we both read as children, and if you haven't read it, um, go read it. They're actually a big-budget uh, motion picture right now. They're in pre-production um, on A Wrinkle in Time. But go read the book. Um, it's absolutely magical. Yeah, everybody read the books. So when the movie comes out, you can say the book is better. Well, I'm sure it will be better, but I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to the film as well. Well, you know, the, the, you never know when. When sometimes when they take something that's a classic, and then they make a movie of it, it's where they, if they depart from it in an interesting way, sometimes is the best way to do it. You know, if they try to do a a one to one transfer of the of the book to the movie, that's always where where it's a failure, at least in my opinion. 
Well, we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll yeah, see. Making, making, telling a movie story is a very different art form than, 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 than writing a book, so it always has to vary to some degree. Um, other names, let's see. No, we're not going to go through every one of the inspirations here. you got to buy the encyclopedia yourself to read them all, but just um, Valentine Michael Smith is on there because uh, you couldn't grok Spock before Valentine Michael Sp- uh, Smith. And, and um, uh, Helena Trimble. So this is one that I had to think about. I, I, I must admit that it took me a minute. Uh, Helena Trimble was a character from the Questor tapes and was named that because, obviously, of B. Joe and John Trimble. Was that your way of giving it a, a hat tip to them, or was it to the character, or just to a little bit of both? Well, both, absolutely, but we loved the Questor tapes, and we were very sorry it never went any further uh, than the pilot, basically, or the, the TV movie. Um, again, if you haven't seen it, um, it's, it's really good. So I highly recommend it. Is that is that something that's easy to get for people that have never seen it? Is that streamable? Is that on one of those? Do you know if it is? or? I don't know if it's streaming, but uh, uh, Universal, uh, yeah. Universal Archive has it for sale on, on DVD. That's where we got it. Yeah, that's where we got it. Right, right. That's one of those um, DVD companies where you basically, they, they, they didn't pre- uh, pre-print a whole bunch you make an order and they basically make a duplicate they make one for you and send it to you and it's not that expensive it's 12 bucks or something like that and warner brothers does the same thing and that's how we um uh uh, got genesis 2 right yeah also the other these were these were the rodden these were roddenberry shows post star trek pre star trek the next generation there was the questor tapes Genesis 2 and Planet Earth, which was almost a remake of Genesis 2, correct? Yeah, but not done as well. Right, right. Our, our understanding is that Genesis 2 was sold as a pilot, or was, was made as a pilot, it didn't sell, so they tried to retool it much as they did for, uh, for the original Star Trek, and that didn't sell, and then ultimately they, they, made, a, uh, they made a couple of episodes without Roddenberry's involvement, and those, those are even less successful, sadly. Yeah, and those are available on Warner Archive, and yeah, they're like twelve bucks or something. It's it's, and it's you know not just curiosity. It's like they're good stuff, you know, especially looking back now, where um, because you can see sometimes uh, sort of the roots or trace elements of later Star Trek in some of these earlier projects, like Questor tapes, especially has a lot of what, what kind of well, Questor and Data. There right. you go. I mean. Um, but Robert Foxworth is brilliant um, as Quester. It's really, um, again, I, I, we, we really like it. And, um, and we've known Bijo for, you know, a long time. And, and um, uh, so we very much wanted to, you know, honor her. I mean, in making that statement, we wanted to honor her as well. Cool, cool. Well, listen, I, I know that you guys got to run. We've, we've taken a lot of your morning up. But before we do, um, you have been involved, like, you know, in Star Trek since since the 1980s, Star Trek Four, Star Trek Six, And, uh, you know, the new show will be coming out next year. And correct me if I'm wrong, you were not involved in any sort of formal way with the new show. So this is the first one in a long time that you'll be watching just as fans, correct? Yeah, it's uh, uh, on one hand, yeah, we absolutely would have loved uh, to work on it, but it's being shot in, in Toronto. But there is something very special about being able to tune in and to know nothing about it, to go, oh, my God, is he going to make it? 
Right. So right. we're we're we are we are looking forward to uh, uh, to our being able to watch it purely as fans. And we worked with Brian Fuller on um, on Voyager and like him a lot. And so, you know, we have high hopes. Yeah, we would have liked to have worked on it. But again, we like our home and they're filming in Toronto. So it's, um, you have served Star Trek well for many decades. You, you don't owe Star Trek anything. You've, you've uh, created a visual language of the future. I mean, all like I said, I, people don't even realize, uh, you know, there are there are um, screensavers you know, licensed or unlicensed out there that are taken from your work, from your vision and how you incorporated your art into Star Trek. So so like I say, you guys don't owe the show anything. You deserve to be able to watch one as fans at this point. Well, we obviously love Star Trek a, a great deal. And the, one of the things that we very much um, enjoy about the Gene Roddenberry um, universe, it is a universe with hope and optimism and on this planet, especially right now in the United States, there's a lot of, of talk of hate and isolation and um, really is wonderful to be able to believe in something that's hopeful. And we hold that very dear to us. And we believe that the community of Star Trek um, aficionados, fans, people that really enjoy it kind of hopefully carry that out into their daily lives and that can just make this world a better place yeah i i I couldn't agree more and uh i really hope that the new show and i i mean all signs point to this that the new show isn't just going to be another television adventure i mean there's a lot of cool stuff on tv you know people say westworld is great and i haven't gotten around to it yet it's episode three just showed last night and I'm sure it's terrific, but I don't know that it's going to, <laughs> you know, I don't know that it's going to save our country. I don't know that it's going to heal us uh, because there's so much bad, bad uh, mojo in the air. And I think that Star Trek, this new show, you know, not, not not entirely facetiously, I think is going to help calm us down a little bit. I really do think it, it has the potential to do that. So, uh, yeah, the show can't come fast enough as far as I'm concerned. Star Trek has always pointed us to a better tomorrow, and uh, for whatever inspiration it, it provides, uh, we're very, very proud to be part of that. Excellent, excellent. Well, listen, like I said, I know I know you guys got to run, but I mentioned it briefly. You know, there was, um, uh, there was one uh, space shuttle mission in, in, in real life, we're not talking Star Trek, where you guys were involved uh, from a design point of view. Can, can you, you mention that real quick? How the heck... When that, you got that phone call, did you think a friend was uh, was was pranking you? I mean, how uh, how did that work out? This wasn't that long ago either, right? You, uh, you're talking about the STS-125 uh, mission of Space Shuttle Atlantis. It was the last uh, Hubble telescope, Hubble Space Telescope servicing mission. The lead spacewalker on that on that mission is an uh, astronaut and scientist uh, named John Grunsfield. And uh, he was NASA's chief scientist, and he came out of retirement to go up to Hubble one last time to help fix one of the greatest scientific instruments of all time. And uh, uh, one day he contacted me and said, hey, would you be interested in designing the, uh, the mission patch that we'll wear on our spacesuits? And I said, oh, yeah, I think so. And uh, so one day we were chatting, and he said, hey, um, you know, the, 
one of the reasons I became an astronaut and a scientist was because I wanted to be like Mr. Spock. And uh, how cool is that? Yeah. Michael has actually done quite a bit for NASA. He's done uh, many different um, patches and logos for d different departments. There was a, um, a proposed uh, mission called Star Trek, excuse me, so called um, Constellation, and which would have taken us back to the moon and then on to Mars. Sadly, it was canceled. But Michael did a lot of work on that. Um, so again, our, our love of the real space program melds completely um, with our love uh, for Star Trek. Awesome. Well, listen, the, the book is available in stores tomorrow. This episode will be going live out there in the podcast universe on Wednesday, so it will have been out for a day. But tomorrow is when it shows up in stores. Are you guys going to be driving around to local stores to check out where it is? Or are you going to be saying it's done, it's out there, I don't want to think about it right now? We'll be following it online. Uh, people have been posting pictures. It's already actually out in a couple of stores that it probably shouldn't be. Uh -oh. But people have been sending us pictures. So that's that's really cool. We, we love when people show pictures of uh, of the book on either their shelves or the, our bookshelves. Oh, that's terrific. That's Well, you know what? If you're listening to this show and you buy uh, the encyclopedia either at a bookstore or via via Amazon or one of those things, take a photo and uh, tweet it. You guys are both on Twitter, correct? Correct. And, uh, you know, you're easy to find on Twitter. You can tweet it at me, and I can tweet it at them, and uh, we could all celebrate. We'll all retweet it. We'll all retweet it. And, um, you know, you got to make some space, but it deserves it. This is Star Trek, and this is, you know, this is it. This is the 50th anniversary. This is the encyclopedia. This is the base of knowledge. If Star Trek is something that... Uh, that puts an emphasis on education and 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 knowledge and thinking. Uh, you need to start with with this. So you know, make some room. Uh, you know, the book ain't cheap, but it's worth every penny. And uh, you know, find it and take a great photo, and and we'll retweet it for you. That's that's the deal that we're making. That sounds like fun, actually. <laughs> there you go. All right, guys. Well, congratulations again, and I'm sure we'll see you at the next convention. Until then. Thanks so much, and and if you like, I'll beam you out again. You know, we, we, we hopefully you know we won't be destroying your 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 consciousness, just moving your atoms around. How does that sound? Just be gentle. Okay, you got it. Thanks again, guys. Thank you. Bye. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.